From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. As our regular listeners know, we bring you role models. We talk about tactics and strategies for personal success, and we dive into the issues that shape our experience as women in the world. And today, we're going to tackle it all with one of our favorite guests, the insightful and inspiring Sally Krawcheck. Together, we're going to talk about how she's helping women build the wealth we need to live the lives we want, and why financial autonomy is so critically important to all of us. Sally is the CEO and co-founder of Elevest, an investing and wealth management company that's on a mission to get more money into the hands of women. In fact, it's the only investing platform built by women for women. She is a true trailblazer with nearly three decades of experience in the financial services industry. She's led Merrill Lynch, Smith Barney, and City Private as CFO. She was named the last honest analyst by Fortune and one of the most influential women in finance by Barron's. She's also the author of Own It, an incisive and instructive discussion of how women can tap into the skills we inherently possess to shape our own careers and futures. So Sally, welcome back to Women at Work. Hey, it's great to be back. Or thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So a lot's happened since the last time you were here when we got to talk about Own It. And Elevest has really become a pivotal, seemingly thriving investment platform for women. So for our listeners, can you give us a little background on how Elevest came to be? You were at a critical moment where you could have built just about anything. Oh, well, um, well, thank you for that. Um, and it's interesting because here on Women in Work, um, I'm often asked what my best career advice is for women. And probably um, counterintuitively, it is to invest, which means to build wealth. Um, and I think we, while some people say money does not buy happiness, um, I would tend to disagree. Um, I know that money buys autonomy, mm-hmm. independence, the ability to quit a job you hate, the ability to quiet quit a job you hate and (laughs) be figuring it out while you're quiet quitting, the ability to potentially start that business you're dreaming about, the ability to leave a bad relationship. We love to say, Laura, nothing bad happens when women have more money. Sadly, we've been moving backwards, um, both on a relative basis to men. We um, have 30 cents to a white man's dollar, um, a penny for black women. Um, And even on an absolute basis, black millennial women have less wealth than their mothers did. Um, And so it may be strange, what what are you doing here on a work show? But these things are really related. So Elevest is the only, as you mentioned, invest tech and wealth management company that really centers women. Um, And we saw an enormous market hole and an enormous market opportunity one that the investing industry sort of continues to poo-poo with a, you know, you say, well, gosh, women don't invest as much as men do. And it costs women, the women who are listening, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars over the course of their lives. Um, and the, this, this Wall Street sort of says back, yeah, well, we all know why that is. They're, they're risk averse, of course. Um, maybe they don't like math, maybe they don't like trading, they need more financial education, to which we say that is a possible explanation for it. Another is that in an industry in which 98% of mutual fund dollars are managed by men, even though the results say women are better mutual fund managers, right. better, not you know higher returns, higher risk adjusted returns, where 86% of financial advisors are men, may, maybe you didn't mean to, but you built a business for yourselves. And what if we, not Laura with, you know, pink it and shrink it, but in a data-based, fact-based, analytically based, built, you know, an investing offering from the first dollar to multiple tens of millions of dollars for women by women. And that's what we did. It's incredible. When I went online to check out the site, um, prepared to see um, and I was looking partly, obviously, because we were going to talk today, but also my 21-year-old daughter. Is this mm. something she could do? Or is it something for later stages of career when you have more money? And I was so amazed to see how accessible it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
what's the beginning level of investment? What's the smallest amount that people could invest? A penny. Um, I can't give you a diversified investment portfolio for less <laughs> than a, you know ten dollars to twenty dollars okay. or so. Uh, but the the real key here is to start early. Um, because there have really only been a couple of different ways to scalably and historically reliably build wealth. One was to buy a home, uh, but woo, takes a down payment, takes a you know, mortgage. A lot of folks have been redlined out of it, uh, but investing is accessible. Um, we've sort of taken the message that it's riskier than it's been if you invest for 10, 15, 20 years. You've had a historically a 99 to 100% chance of a positive return during those periods and money compounds, which is a, you know, a, a concept that is not intuitive. It's that your money grows faster over time because you earn returns, not on the original money, but, you know, on the returns and then on the other returns and then on the more returns and then on the more returns. And so for your young, daughter in her young 20s, starting wherever she can, maybe it's half a percent of her take home pay, maybe it's a percent, maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 10 bucks, you know, every week, uh, but just getting started. And then you watch that money with volatility, ups and downs, but historically has compounded um, and begun to build wealth. So one of the things that goes along with wealth is financial health. And mm -hmm. you've done some, some really meaningful work on this. And you shared some statistics at the beginning. I just want to go over because they were just so staggering. I want to make sure I didn't hear you wrong. That mm -hmm. we know that there's a wage gap in what we were paid. Mm -hmm. But I think what you were talking about is how much money we actually have. Exactly. And the idea that Black women have $1 to every $100 that a white yes. man has. Did I get that right? You got that right. And it's been going in the wrong direction. It's been getting so, worse. So for women who are in these situations, it's un I would understand if they said, I I'm making so little, I have so little. Right. It's hard to put things away and put money away. And so that's where financial health comes in. So what are the first steps that you recommend? Um, and by the way, for those of you who are listening, go to the website. There's amazingly accessible information there. Right. And we do try to have a, a ton of resources and again, all centering women and some of the stuff to, for us that's unique. I mean, we live longer, we earn less, we our salaries peak sooner, we take more career breaks. Th those are important inputs that we alone take into account with our investing algorithm and building an, invest an investment portfolio. And so finding and investing in a wealth management firm that feels right to you um, that is a fiduciary that, um, you know, does take these, these, this personalization into account, um, truly matters. But, but Laura, to answer your question, I think it's, you start where you are, mm -hmm. uh, and whatever you can do, you do what we, a goal is of your take-home pay, 50% goes to needs. That's your rent. That's the gas for the car. That's the clothes you need for, you know, going, going back to the office. 30%, believe it or not, should go to fun uh, because, you know, it's fun. Right. And you, only, we need you fun. know, to my the absolute best of my knowledge, um, you know, you only have one life, so you might as well have fun. And then 20%, I sort of think is goes to taking care of grandma you. Now, this is really important. And maybe it's grand aunt you or maybe it's big sister you, but this is really important because um, you've got to take care of her. Nobody else necessarily will. Mm -hmm. And the other staggering stats that I'm going to share with you are 80% of women die single. Um, that's because we live six to eight years longer than the men in our lives. If there's a man in our life, half of marriages end in divorce. Um, and when we outsource that money to him, which is still the norm in our country mm -hmm. and the money comes back to us, often very often laura the worst week of our lives 74 percent of women say they had a negative surprise not 50 percent, not 20 percent, but three quarters of women say that isn't as much as i thought it was going to be at that moment when they're perhaps widowed and all of a sudden discover their financial reality oh my gosh you know 
he was bragging about all the money he made in Bitcoin. I didn't hear him talk about, you know, and, and she is outsourcing that to him again because the culture has dictated it. And he has the weight of that on him where he's not sharing that burden with her. So 98% of widows say the number one piece of advice they would give to other women is be involved with the money. So back to this. 50% for needs, 30% for fun, 20% if you can, needs to take care of grandma you in the future. Um, and what that means is in this order, if you have credit card debt, I want you to first pay that off. Forget about investing until you do that because those rates are so high, particularly with interest rates high. All the good stuff that we talked about, wealth, compounding, investing, is the opposite when you have credit cards. Everybody, every one of us has had that experience of, I, I bought the dress and I paid a hundred bucks for it, but I ended up really paying 400, you know, 300 bucks because I paid the minimum, right? So that sucks away at your well. So number one, you want to get that credit card debt or other high interest rate debt paid off. Number two, you want to be building an emergency fund. So you've got three months of take-home pay. Number three, you want to invest if you have it at a 401k at work because you not only get the benefit of investing, you get the tax benefit of the compounding or open an IRA right. or Roth IRA at, at Elevest. And then you want to go on to the regular investing. That's, you know, if you're young, right out of college, you know, or you just had a, a starting a family, those numbers may not work for you. Do what you can. Do what, don't sweat it, right? Try 1% of your take-home pay gets invested. And then in a couple of months, can you scooch it up to 2%? Can you scooch it up to 3%? When the kids go to college, maybe it's not 20%. Maybe you can do 40% and, you know, do that catch up. But sort of, I love it when Susie Orman says, stand in your truth. Stand in your truth. You know, right. it is what it is. So part of that, I want to go back to those, that, that very fragile stage where people aren't making a lot of money, often early in career or after a big life transition. And it's hard to put away money. And like you noted, they could be accruing great amount of credit card debt just to get by. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. first step is obviously re reducing the debt because that's sucking away your money from everything else. Mm -hmm. But then there's the equation of how can you build an emergency fund so you don't keep returning to your credit right. card debt? And right. can that emergency fund be fluid at that fragile time? Is it just a sacred thing that you put it away for three months and you get three mm -hmm. months away and don't touch it? How can you deal with that interim time wisely? And everybody's different. And by the way, this is why we ha added financial planners um, at LFS for this kind of financial guidance. Everybody's situation is different. You know, what I, part of me wants to say is you got to look at cutting your expenses. Mm -hmm. You just, you know, the part of standing in your truth is particularly you see it for for younger folks as they're coming you know into their own of trying to keep up with uh, young people who got the job on wall street um and wanting to go out for drinks with it i mean it's only human nature and how do you have those conversations of look i, I can't afford the rent over here and i can't afford to go out every night and i can't afford to do that those are tough conversations to have um but they pay off down the road um, in, you know, so back up, money is women's number one source of stress. You, you talked about financial health. Financial health is foundational. Um, you cannot have, you know, emotional health without financial health. The stress eats away at you. For many people, you can't have physical health without right. financial health. Those things, you know, go hand in hand. And so almost we, we play around with the concept of almost thinking of it as, as self-care. You know, these are, again, if you're taking care of grandma, you and picture her and you know, think about it's only me who's taking care of her. How would you treat her? Um, and you'd want, you know, to stand up for her today and, and potentially say, I, the, the, here are just the things I can't afford to do. And right. And well, the grandma me time seems like it's far away from some of us who are closer to it. It comes before you know it. And you'll oh. be really grateful that you put that money away. Well, I don't know because I'm 26, but I'm sure for you, it's a little bit. <laughs> so Sally, I want to switch gears a little bit. You know, in talking about self-care, stress, um, we've all been through an extraordinary time of the pandemic where um, we're still living with the byproduct of all the ways that that stressed us. Um, and you've been leading a team through all of that. Mm -hmm. How did you, as a leader, approach 
um, the care of your own staff, your own team during that extraordinary time. Yeah, um, it's funny. I had a, I actually had a little flashback last night. I um, was sitting on my bed, you know, scrolling as we tend to do, and came across one of the videos I used to watch during the pandemic. And it just, Laura, just my stomach squeezed. You know, it just we've sort of left it behind. But you're right; it's going to stay with us forever. Um, so we went fully remote. We had an office in the Flatiron District of New York City, as any good startup does. Right. Um, we were fortunate. I was fortunate that the lease was up um, in September of 2020. So we were able to leave it behind without paying any penalties and, and save the expenses. And what happened pretty quickly is, uh, you know, folks started to move um, from New York and move to back home, you know, back to with their parents or they wanted more of an outdoor lifestyle, et cetera. Um, and we found pretty quickly that we were hiring just this extraordinary talent across the country when it wasn't a, and can you be in New York? And by the way, we had a few folks in, you know, California, but can you be in New York every other week? And, you know, all that stuff um, that, you know, we, we just found talent. And I think our combination of our mission to get more money in the hands of women the difficulty of the problem we're trying to solve. How do you change behavior? How do you change the popular perception of women and money? How do you help women who've been brought up thinking about, ah, oh, you know, I don't want to look greedy or I, you know, I don't want to be too aggressive. All the stuff we've been socialized to, it's such a difficult and interesting and challenging problem um, that we were able to really open up where we were able to hire from. Um, so that was a benefit to us. And then I'd say the challenge of working remotely is real. Um, we, you know, I do believe that we are as a company more productive than we used to be and less creative than we used to be. Well, that's interesting. Um, Talk yeah. to me more about how you've observed it and why you yeah. think it's happening. We, just, we used to miss deadlines. We just, you know, if we had a deadline, we, we would miss it. Um, and it just doesn't happen as much anymore. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know if it's we're not in the office, you know, chatting and, and enjoying ourselves yeah. <laughs> um, or, you know, people get back the was it an hour you were commuting, you yeah. know, and, and fine, take you know, and by the way, we're 85 percent women, we're 50 percent people of color. Um, and so a lot of, you know, everybody has families, um, you know, and so is it you take that you had an hour to commute um, or maybe two hours and take half of it and spend that with your family, you know, catch up with your parents, exercise more, whatever those things right. are, but maybe half of it goes to work. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been my experience. Yeah. It's not sort of on purpose and sort of not. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's right. And, and there aren't the distractions. And so heads, heads down time in the office was one thing we were open plan heads down, you know, alone in your, you know, kitchen could be another thing. And then I'd say the other thing, Laura, that has been really worked for us is our mission is so damn strong. You know, people don't come into Alabast with a, what are we doing? Like, could you <laughs> remind me what the mission, you know, we're, we, you know, everybody in the industry, we put the client at the center and we're contrarians and we personalize and, you know, we put you first and blah, 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 blah. Like they all say the same and they're not, nothing's bad about them. They're all the same. We, you know, our mission is to get more money in the hands of women. Yeah, everybody knows it. And so there's just a crispness to, you know, to our mission, to our culture that is able to transcend, you know, oh, we're out of the office. You know, I sort of forgot what we're doing. So how did you observe? Where did you observe the loss, the decline in creativity? And what do you attribute it to? It's my it's my intuition, um, you know, and I think it's because we're not having those magical moments in the hallway of, you know, hey, hey, I was just thinking something. Um, I'm going to wander over and you know what, let's get four of us really quickly and sketch mm -hmm. this out on a whiteboard. Um, that used to happen quite a bit. We, we were smaller and it just it's, you know, you know, I'll you call somebody, it's sort of a big deal. Like, what, what are you calling me for on my cell phone? This is weird. <laughs> and so by the time you sort of get, let's have a Zoom and let's set up the Zoom and oh, your calendar with the Zoom. And I forgot, 
my great idea. Um, right, the spontaneity goes out of it. Yeah, it does. It does, and that there's there's some meaning to that too. There's some. I, I also found also I'm um, you know I have an art and design background. Visualizing things super important to me, but I felt like when I sat in that chair in front of um, Zoom after Zoom, it was like I was buckling into an airplane seat and flying cross country for the day. Mm -hmm. And the lack of movement and the lack of taking up space and being at a whiteboard, I also think was limiting my own creativity. I know, I know, but and let me, so that is the negative and the positive. Forget about personal experiences. Mm -hmm. You are seeing there was you know, some research released yesterday that women are returning to the workforce, women of childbearing age at sort of record types of levels. So as companies are enabling this flexibility, um, it is a positive for sure. It is a positive. I do take, I do bristle a bit um, at the, you know, you must come back into the office. Um, you must be there five days a week or three days a week, um, you know, um, you know, people, our culture is so important. This matters for our culture. And I do have to bristle and say, just recognize your culture worked for you, the CEO, you, right. the leadership team. Um, it didn't necessarily work, or maybe by definition did not work for underrepresented groups. Um, you know, the microaggressions, the macroaggressions, the commute with, you know, the social expectations of, of childcare, and who has to be there? Um, just let's let's just admit it. Don't talk about the culture like it was some amazing, you know, holy thing. Um, it didn't. It worked for the folks it worked for. It didn't work for the folks it didn't. And, and so, the data tells us how true that is. Yet we, like you said, you have the intuition about creativity. But yeah. I'm gathering that when you put the two on the scale, which is the worst to lose in the trade-off. For, for sure. Now for us, you know, it, you know, 85% women. And I think the, you know, then I guess we've got to be 90% plus underrepresented groups. We don't have that. We have, we don't have that issue, but for sure, for companies that represent the average one, 100%. Sally, how purposeful were you about building such a diverse team and how did you do it? Super purposeful. Um, and, and I think a lot about who our investors are. We are still majority owned by underrepresented groups after, you know, even at this stage of our, our growth. Um, there is research that tells us that the diversity of a company of a startup is set at about 13 people. Um, and that's because you're using your networks to find other people. Um, things get sort you know, the uh, internalized expectations you know, sort of start to come through as the group makes decisions. Um, and so those first 13 people are really important. And I'll tell you an anecdote um, about it, which is uh, when we were probably 15 people, maybe 20 people in, we were um, looking to fill one of the first roles that did not report directly to me or to my co-founder. Um, and he and I, I remember I was in California for whatever reason, we were catching up on a Saturday morning on a couple of things. Um, and I said, well, how's the search going? And he said, oh, well, let me tell you, we, we got two really great candidates. One of them is, you know, a woman, you got, you know, dirty blonde hair. She went to like a, you, you know, a Ivy League in the Northeast and, you know, representing essentially what the majority of our company was at that point. And we have this other individual, non-binary individual, person of color, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, that's interesting. How, how are people feeling about these two candidates? And he said, well, you know, it's really like 55% for the, the blonde lady, you know, 45% for the other. Um, we're gonna go with the blonde lady. Um, and I said, no, we're not. And he, what? And I said, look, given unconscious bias and generalized expect internalized expectations, if it's 55, 45, it, it's 20, 80, it's 30, 70, you know, come on. To which he said, well, look, everybody knows, you know, we've been clear. We want to bring in, you know, underrepresented groups. We want to add diversity with every hire. We don't want culture fit. We want culture add. But we really have to let our managers manage. We have to. 
Um, and this manager knows what we're looking for. Um, and on the next hire, you know, she'll have bring in someone who adds diversity to the team. And I said, absolutely not. You know, well, we got to let our managers manage. They're going to be, you know, they're, they're going to feel disempowered if we don't. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but we have raised money from prominent individuals like a Melinda Gates, you know, like Rethink Impact, um, you know, like a Penny Pritzker, like a Melly Hobson. And part of this is we committed to build a diverse team. And I spent my entire career on Wall Street where, where in, you know, where in middle management was where diversity went to die because they allowed the managers to manage. Exactly. That the inherent biases, you know, don't get knocked out because you went to one unconscious bias training class. And yep. if you let your managers manage over time, their gut, their instinct is going to be mean that they're going to hire people just like them. That's where the issue is. That's where things get clogged up. It's not that CEOs don't care about diversity. It's that they let the managers have a meritocracy. And right. I'm not going to take all this knowledge you and I have, you know, and just throw it out the window because of meritocracy. We're going to use the best research, et cetera. Um, and we had, we had a, a go at it, honestly. Um, and But I, I won because I'm a CEO. And that's how we <laughs> built the company, by being directive. And at times, I would say, you know, if we can't bring some type of diversity through the filling this role we're just not going to fill it um and you you know oh we're, we're sorry you'd be surprised how quickly people figure out you know how to expand their networks when it's you know this or, or don't hire sally there's so much to unpack here but we have to take a short break so don't go away and when we come back um, I'm going to, we're going to continue our discussion. Um, Sally Krawcheck, CEO and co-founder of Elevest, an investing and wealth management company that is on a mission, get more money in the hands of women. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we're going to help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. And today, we're talking about how we're going to empower women through money and investing. My guest for this discussion is the extraordinary Sally Krawcheck, CEO and co-founder of Elevest, an investing and wealth management company that's on a mission to get more money in the hands of women. Before the break, we were talking about how Sally built her team. I'm looking forward to diving into this. So Sally, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks. So as you built this amazing team, really diverse, purposefully diverse, how did you then create culture within Elevest to make sure that this team could thrive and work together? Hmm. I think the first um, you know, uh, approach is to make sure that that mission is strong, that it's stated, that it's stated again and again and again and again, um, that is one that resonates with people. Um, and that means it doesn't resonate with some people. We, we actually have one individual who worked the company for a day um, and just was very clearly, quickly not a culture fit, and it was clear on both sides. And so it's, it, you know, if your mission you know, and your company is for everybody, it may not be for anybody, but we are really crisp around what we're doing. And we're really crisp around who our, you know, our community is. We call her Elle. We, you know, have her older sister, Adele. We have her slightly older sister, Eleanor. Um, you know, we are clear on who she is, what she's doing, um, what she wants, et cetera, et cetera, so that people can really bring it to life. Um, we are, you know, we're clear that we're solving hard problems. Uh, we are not the first one who came up with the idea of centering women. Uh, we are the first one that's gotten it right um, to any degree. You know, it's in part because the other initiatives have defined the issue, why don't women invest as a marketing problem and how do we convince them? And we defined it, sure, there's a marketing problem, um, there's a brand opportunity, there's a community opportunity, but it's also a product issue too. Mm -hmm. um, that the, you know, just like the crash dummies are built in the image of men and medical research is done on men. So these businesses are are targeted and, and center targeted to and center men. Um, you know, and then we set up pretty pretty good clip of a pace. 
you know, this, we, we're, we're doing important work. And so we need to, to motor and take some risks. And, you know, all of that is, is clear. And I think attracts people who, who, who want to be there. So Sally, your integrity is something for which you are appropriately widely praised. And it was um, essential during the crisis in 2008 and the work that you were doing on Wall Street. How did you, at the time, you were credited with improving culture around that issue of integrity and responsibility. Um, how did you do that then? And how does that also permeate what you do at LFS now? Yeah. Um, well, thank you for asking that. No, it, 2007, 2008 was tough, um, the subprime crisis. And, you know, you have moments that you're going to remember on your deathbed. And one moment is when one of my direct reports walked in with essentially a Houston, we have a problem, um, which was that we had um, of several billion dollars of an investment security that we had sold, um, which was supposed to be quite low risk, was supposed to be diversified. Um, and it was supposed to go down in a tough market a few cents, but it went down all the cents uh, because it was not, it was diversified, but just not in a way that mattered. Um, and it was, it was leveraged as well. And so um, I believed and made the case to the CEO that we should partially reimburse clients for it even though the small print said you could lose everything. Um, he vehemently disagreed with me. We went back and forth and it eventually went to the board um, where I took him on. I never thought I'd be involved in a boardroom brawl. The board sided with me and I lost my job. Um, you know, it, it, the way I made the decision, because I, I polled a bunch of people who I worked with, what should I do? How do I navigate through this? And about half of people said, put your guns down, you know, just live to fight another day. And I love, Laura, I loved my job running Smith Barney, running the city private bank. I loved it. Um, I love the people. I love the work. Um, so there was an appeal to just live to fight another day. And then half of people said, well, you know, what you're saying is right. You, you know, you were wrong. Um, and the way I navigated my way through it is at the time I, I thought, and it just made it so crystal clear. I mean, I went round and round and round for weeks. And then when I asked myself the very, very simple question of what would I want my children see me do, you know, I mean, like then it's like, oh, that's easy. Right. It's so easy, right. I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to continue to fight this. Um, but you know, there's a price to be paid for it. I, I remember coming out of the job and, and reading the press and, oh, there are going to be so many opportunities for Sally, you know, this kind of ethical individual, so rare on, on Wall Street, you know, someone's going to snap her up and turns to camera, no one snapped her up. I mean, it just, it, you know, <laughs> when you step out of the comfort of the crowd, um, there can sometimes be a price that is paid. Um, do, you know, would you as a CEO want to bring in somebody who did the right thing? I'm putting little air quotes around it and right. made a stink and got the money return. Or would you prefer to bring in somebody who um, was in the crowd? And I think, frankly, for most CEOs, the answer is the latter, right. not the former. So on the tail of that, um, you to say you recovered is an understatement and have gone on to be a real force for change. What? How did you approach becoming an entrepreneur? You yeah. clearly understood the product of how to manage money. That wasn't the question, but entrepreneurship is its own art and science. Oh, I know. And, and let's be clear to your listeners, do not do it unless you must. Do, do not become an entrepreneur because you think it's fun um, or even sexy. It is such hard work. Um, I, I say it's harder than running Merrill Lynch, and, and I know because I've done both. Uh, and nobody, nobody else has. Um, but you have to have a burning insight and a burning idea and a desire to solve it. Um, and let's be frank, Laura, the privilege to do it as well, the ability to step out and, and not take a salary for some period of time, potentially, you know, to, um, you know, feel unstable, at least, to, you know, professionally. But, uh, you know, I had this 
I, I can't, I, and I can't believe I had it career in the industry. I cannot believe I was in the rooms I was in. I cannot believe I had the opportunities I had. I cannot believe I've met the people I've met. I cannot believe I've learned the things that I've learned. And one day when I was putting on my mascara and, and sort of had this tumbling series of insights that led to Elevest, which is, you know, the retirement savings crisis is a woman's crisis. I've talked earlier, 80% of women die single. We don't have as, you know, we talk about the gender pay gap. Sure. But there's this gender wealth gap, how much you women have and how much they keep, which is much wider and actually much more important. And think of all the women in the jobs they hate and in the relationships that don't work for them. And it's say, you know, at the time Time's Up was there. I mean, like Time's Up is also, it's about power, which means it's about money. You know, these rich men weren't chasing around a bunch of rich women, right? They were chasing around women, you know, who were powerless, who didn't have the financial resources. So seeing that and then like, huh, what's the solution? Huh? As we talked about earlier, investing has been a scalable way to build wealth historically. I know something about that. Here, here I see this important problem that affects her individually, but also is affecting our entire friggin' society. Mm -hmm. You know the research, Laura. If you want to improve a society, you get more money to women, and they get that money to their families and their community, and the communities are stronger and nonprofit. Like, again, nothing bad happens when women have more money. And I'm like, I can see this as clear as a bell huh, somebody should do this, huh? It probably should be somebody who can raise the quite a bit of money that outside funding that's needed, that has a finance background, that can build a tech team, that, you know, can, you know, build a brand that, you know, I looked around and I'm like, they're and probably, you know, probably gotta be a woman. Um, and I looked around and I said, I think it's a, a subset of one. Right. At least, certainly, Laura, a subset of one who is, crazy enough, you know, zany, you know, <laughs> off the resort, you know, crazy enough to do it, subset of one there. Um, and if I didn't do it, and I, you know, went and did a series of boards, there's nothing wrong with it. But I just, I, it just wouldn't have sat right with me. So I want to switch gears for a minute. Because um, you were talking even just a moment ago about the retirement savings crisis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's so inspiring how you, I think really at mid-career, um, made this enormous pivot. And over here in people analytics, you know, we look at workplace data, labor force data. I'm overwhelmed, um, actually, uh, to say I'm irritated is an understatement, at how much of it studies 24 to 54 year olds as if mm -hmm. people beyond 54 are not really part <laughs> of the workforce and not worth investing in. So this obviously has implications for how we save and how we prepare for life when we live longer than ever before. And I was wondering what advice you have for women during this stage of their professional lives to stay in the game, to stay in the workforce mm. and how to prepare financially. Right. So I, I am in my fifties. Um, what a great time. What a great time. Um, you know, I feel like I have been fighting with one to two arms tied behind my back for decades. Um, and I love my children. I'm over, I love them in an overwhelming fashion. I am so glad they're out of the nest. I cannot tell you, <laughs> I cannot tell you. Um, just the time that gets freed up by not, you know, the worry and the emotional work and the physical work and the drama and the whole thing. And it's interesting. It's an interesting time. I've heard, a friend of mine was saying, you know, at this stage, you know, the men feel like they're reaching the finish line and are ready to play golf. And for women, I mean, you have, I've, I've got two arms that I can now use. I exactly. feel like, and you look, you look at so many of these women who are in their sixties or seventies in media and politics, et cetera, who are operating at the top of their game. It is such an exciting time. And I, I do think, you know, you're allowed to be a leader more mm -hmm. at this, the, this age, you know, you're, you're seen to have that gravitas. You don't have to take people's bloop, um, <laughs> et cetera. So I think it's an exciting time. Um, you know, and for some people, they, you know, a number of my friends are starting businesses at this stage because they have socked away something and they do have more time. Um, and are able to pour into a, a new business or a side hustle. Now, for those who 
Oh, I, I, I didn't invest in my 20s. I didn't do that much in my, I've got this 401k. I don't know. But do what you can. It is not, it is not too late. And this is where our greater longevity sort of helps us, um, that we are able to invest for the longer term uh, because we have long-term left, which historically has driven higher returns. Um, and so there is the, you know, there is the ability to, to keep investing and to, because we have 20, 30, 40 years left, you know, to, um, to access the, those higher returns. For women who aren't in poise to be in leadership roles, um, who have stepped out of the workforce at different times to care for family, who um, got stuck on the path to middle management, who are looking for work. Mm-hmm. What do you have to say to employers who may not be considering them, just in the way that you were thinking about, you know, the way you told the story of, you know, the blonde white woman was, you know, all this bias was in her favor. How can we start to see older workers differently and how can we present ourselves differently so that we're seen as potent? Well, for, for sure. Um, look, it, it takes culture change. Um, you know, it, it takes looking at the data, um, you know, and acting on the data as opposed to acting on one's intuition. But for leaders, it's a courageous move because we are so youth obsessed in this country. Um, so for women of a certain age, if you could start a small business, if you're able to do that, um, and particularly businesses for women, there, there's so, I mean, we could sit here, you and I could sit here, and I think in an hour, we, we you know, wouldn't run out of businesses that serve women. Uh, particularly oh, no, there's women such a need. Are, right, there's such a need. So if you're able to, so with me, with Elevest, Right. You know, and the analogy may hold or not, the comparison may hold, you know, people say, why didn't you build an Elevest in a Merrill Lynch? I'm like, I couldn't have, I couldn't have, I couldn't have changed the culture no. enough. And by the way, the business was and is very successful. Why do they need to do anything different? Why do they need to, you know, have that creative destruction through innovation? They, they'd be foolish to. I had to start it from scratch. And, and so that, you know, there's some similarities there, which is it's, you know, but besides talking the stats and urging and encouraging and all that stuff, um, some companies still won't do it. And, and is there a different way in, you know, is it consulting, um, you know, is it joining a smaller business? Um, so you are so evidence informed in your decision making and also in how you communicate with us. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love that Elevest has produced is the Elevest Women's Financial Health Index. And it was released last mm-hmm. year. Um, again, go to the website, check it out. It's really instructive. Um, how did you conceive of it and how was it conducted? Yeah, it, it's interesting because we conceived of it because I wanted to know how are women doing? You know, this um, wealth gap we talked about is, I think, an important indicator of it, but it comes out every few years. You know, it comes out late. You know, it's very backward looking. Um, so it, it is not current for us. But, gee, how, how are, are women f- feeling under financial pressure or are, you know, are they, is their financial position improving? And, gee, we have unique insights to this at Elevest, you know, given that the vast majority of our clients are women, we can see what they're doing in a way that others can't. And so I challenge the team, let's pull, let's, let's really think through what are the financial metrics um, that we should be tracking that will give a feel as to how she's, she's doing. And so it is things like the gender pay gap, Mm-hmm. Um, it is things like are women net entering or leaving the workforce. It's also things like inflation. Well, inflation affects everybody. It d- it does. It does. That you know that m- means that it matters. It actually affects women more. Um, it affects women of color even more because if you have less wealth and prices are inflating, you know, and you're earning less, that's going to affect you more. Um, it's also things like political representation. Um, a small part of it are women CEOs, uh, which is is great, doesn't affect the typical woman as quickly. What might surprise you um, is we also included things like um, reproductive rights and what is happening with you know the passage of legislation restricting reproductive rights. The reason that we do that 
is because it is a um, obviously a social issue. It's a personal issue. For some people, it's a religious issue. It is an economic and financial issue. Inarguably. Right. And it, you know, it, the, for the women, it affects, it affects them dramatically and negatively, and it affects their family the same way. Um, and we found it when we did a survey of women and men across the country, we found for younger women, um, you know, particularly last summer, this was incredibly top of mind for them um, as a financial headwind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think some of the statistics I read is that it can cost, aside from the fact that it costs on average $11,000 per year to raise a child, Mm -hmm. just giving birth Mm -hmm. can cost $5,000. And so um, agency is lost and the economic crisis increases in a kind of exponential way. So Mm -hmm. aside from the urgency of having women in leadership positions and organizations recognizing the challenge that this plays for workers. Um, Mm -hmm. What should women be doing with their own financial health to protect themselves from these societal forces that are going to have a profound impact on their lives? Yeah, I mean, this this is, again, why building wealth is is so important. Um, So to give you another, you know, little factoid, um, again, getting back to that wealth gap, women, 30 cents to a white man's dollar, that's about the ratio of political giving. I mean, it, it almost, Laura, is that simple that if we had the wealth and therefore had the ability to make political donations at the same rate, you know, do we believe the country would be in the same place? Um, I do not. We could, I guess we could debate. I, I could do, I, I, I think we could debate it, but I think there's a pretty good case to be made that the legislations we would be passing might be more compassionate, um, might be more family oriented. I mean, isn't it, it's such an irony and such a sad irony that we were one vote from one old white man away from paid parental leave in this country. Just one. That instead, we flipped to, you know, striking down Roe v. Wade with lightning speed. And, and it was that it was that fine, you know, a line that happened. And so, um, you know, I, I like, again, nothing bad happens when women have more money. If we had had different representation, um, we would be in a different, different place. Natalia, I really appreciate that. It's not just the call to vote. It's how important it is mm. that women are funding candidates that care about women's issues. Absolutely. 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 If we could do that, then, you know, if we got a whole slate of them, then if, you know, everybody would have to vote, you know, for them. Right. (laughs) Exactly. That's all there was. Then that would be the the choice. But we're far away from there. So since September 22, you know, um, so much of so much change is happening across the country with reproductive rights and health care that's going to impact women's financial health, physical, mental health. Um, as you're going into, are you doing that health index again? And what are you expecting to find? We actually just updated it this week, Laura. Oh. How about that? We've had a slight improvement. Um, and the improvement has been driven by the fact that inflation, you know, the rise of inflation has abated. Um, okay. a bit, we talked earlier about this return to the workforce, mm-hmm. driven in part by the greater flexibility um, that women have, um, partially offset by the fact that there are, you know, there's an increase in this legislation, um, you know, diminishing reproductive rights. So there's some pushes and some pulls, um, but things are not great. We're not, you know, on a one to 10 scale, we're talking, you know, two and a half to three and a half, not nine and a half, et cetera. There's still certainly pressure out there. Um, but it's not, it was rock bottom last summer and before the last rock bottom before that, of course, was the pandemic and there is some improvement. So one of the things that I always appreciate you about you is how much information you have. It tells me that you are always actively learning. And I'm just curious, um, we're all here learning about ChatGPT in multiple dimensions. Um, how are you approaching AI, both at Elevest and in your own personal work? Yeah. I, I look, I think it's evolving. I mean, it feels like it is moving so quickly. 
Um, you know, I, so I can tell you, I, by the way, as an aside, and, and the answer to your question is I'm doing what everybody else is doing. I'm playing with it. I'm using it. I'm, I'm uh, astounded by it. I'm astonished by it. I'm appalled by it. I mean, all the, all the <laughs> things, but I can tell you it's in a bubble. Um, and, you know, from an investment point of view, be careful. I, I was at a v venture capitalist conference a few weeks ago and the Bitcoin room breakout room was empty. There were five people and three of them were on the panel. And that was, of course, the no lose two years ago or a year and a half ago. Um, and uh, the chat GPT, the you know AI room was bursting at the seams. And there can be, it can, it can be that the technology has as much promise as it appears to, and you could still lose a lot of money by investing in it. So, you know, be careful of these bubbles that appear quickly. Is there any gender dimension that you see to the um, incorporation of things like GPT into our work and the way that AI may hurt us? Yeah, bias in, bias out. Um, I mean, you've, you've read, I'm sure as I have, you know, the chat GPT, the, the generative AI is just as biased in hiring as, in, as humans are. Mm -hmm. You know, when it's humans who are coding the stuff um, of a certain type, then it is their reality that gets encoded. And, and so, um, and it's hard to, it's hard to dig it out, you know, like where, where does that bias rest? How can you find it? Um, it's so in, intrinsic in the yeah. algorithms right. that you really have to start from scratch, which yeah. goes back to hiring a more diverse team. Sure. Of course. Of course. So Sally, unfortunately we're running out of time. I could ask you questions all day long. Um, well, I think I know the answer. What's the one piece of advice you would give to us about investing? Just do it. So the mistake that men make in investing, which you always read about in the personal finance articles, is they overtrade and, you know, they freak out in bad markets and they don't stay the course. And they don't remain diversified and they fall in love with stocks and blah, 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 blah. The mistake women make is we do not do it and we do not do it soon enough. And Laura, because we've all been socialized for perfection, my friend Reshma Sojani, who I'm sure has been on the show, yep. says boys are taught to be brave, girls are taught to be perfect. We wait until we feel like we know enough to invest and it costs us a fortune. That's fantastic. Sally, thank you so much for joining us today. How can listeners keep up with you and everything you're doing? Well, you can find us over at LFS.com. Um, you can sign up for our newsletter where I, um, I pen a note with some good regularity and you can follow us on Instagram or follow me on LinkedIn. And thank everyone for joining us. If you have a question about anything you heard, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Thanks, as always, to my amazing team, my producers, Dana Cash and Dion Simpkins, and our analytics at Wharton team. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work. To survive.